0: For Pacifica Radio, December the first, two thousand twenty-two. I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti War Radio. All right, Shell. Welcome to the show. It is Anti War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton, and this is my new time, two thirty Thursday afternoon. Here on 90.7 FM in LA. Now, uh, if you don't know me, I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com. I wrote the books Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, and Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Right now, I'm working on a book called Provoked America's Role in the Russia Ukraine War. And I'm happy to be celebrating, right around this time, 12 years. On KPFK. I started out on Friday nights, but most I've been on Sunday mornings for the past decade or so. But I'm happy to be here with you all in this great afternoon drive time spot. So, uh, welcome to it. Alright, so one more thing here real quick. I know what you all must be wondering. Where is Gareth Porter? Is he safe? Is he alright? Yes. He's just busy writing a book about the last Cold War. That's all. Spoiler America started it. But that's it. And don't worry, we'll be talking with Gareth again on the show soon. And uh, so that's it. KPFK. What do you know? 115,000 watts. This is the most powerful FM transmitter west of the Mississippi River. Do you know that? And then plus we got all these great repeaters. San Diego, Ridgecrest, China Lake, and all the way, of course, up to Santa Barbara. It's a real privilege to me. And uh, hey, this network is not named after the ocean. I've always believed that every second on the radio is priceless. So let's get to work here. Introducing my colleague, the great Kyle Anzalone, opinion editor of Antiwar.com. Welcome back to the show, Kyle. How are you doing, sir?
1: Doing very well. Thanks for having me on, Scott.
0: Uh, Very happy to have you here. And you guys are just on top of the news all day long, Kyle. You and your partners, Will Porter, Connor Freeman, Dave DeCamp, and all the rest over at Antiwar.com always on top of the news. And the top headline today is the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. And of course, it's no surprise, but it's always shocking. The headline is that Congress is appropriating $45 billion more than the military was even asking for.
1: Yeah, Scott, this is how it goes pretty much every year that the Pentagon will put forward a budget and Congress will, of course, add to it. A lot of times I think the Pentagon ends up cutting programs that they know Congress is going to step back in for for the pork and everything like that. But as Dave DeCamp was talking about on antiwar dot com, the news program this morning that this actually is going to put the defense budget over a trillion dollars when you talk about all the foreign aid uh, and military aid going to Ukraine and everything. Mm -hmm. And
0: does that include the nukes and the Energy Department and the VA and all that? You're just talking about the Pentagon budget now.
1: No, that that would be with uh, some of those additional, yeah. you know, supporting the empire agencies. Yeah.
0: And yeah, the care and feeding of the nukes, that's still part and parcel of militarism and same for the VA and the rest of that.
1: Yeah. guy. One of the other things in this uh, particular bill that that's different from previous versions of it is it's going to include uh, annual defense aid for Taiwan as well. So uh, Taiwan is going to be put on the dole just I I think, short of the Israel level, around two billion dollars a year uh, they're expected to get.
0: Wow. And then does this include those amendments that had it where they were going to change all the language and really start referring to Taiwan as an independent country in more of their official documents and so forth?
1: It's still somewhat unclear what's going to be in the final bill because it has to go through conference committee, which, you know, the the House and the Senate just get together and get to add whatever they want into the bill. So it, I'm not sure how much of that is going to be in there. But uh, initially, the, at least the Senate version had uh, the language that would make Taiwan a major non-NATO ally of mm-hmm. the U.S.
0: And now one more question on China here. I think it's really important that Conservative Republicans nowadays have this narrative that Joe Biden is bought and paid for by the CCP. And that's why he's so soft on China all the time. What's your take on that?
1: Uh, Biden has ramped up Trump's uh, trade war against China, particularly uh, with this chip export ban. That a lot of different think tanks have put out reports saying that look, this is going to hurt the U.S. and the Chinese economy a lot. Uh, so you know he's continued with the trade war and ramped up the U.S. military pre- presence in the in the Pacific region. So uh, he certainly hasn't in any way been soft on China. Mm.
0: And it's now four or five times that he said that we would essentially thrown out ambiguity in the one China policy and said we would go to war to protect Taiwanese independence. Right.
1: Absolutely. Yep.
0: Yeah. It's just incredible. And I don't, right. yeah, I don't think it's a mistake. It seems to be quite deliberate, although the White House, whoever that is, contradicts him each time. Uh, it's Antiwar Radio. I'm Scott Horton. I'm talking with Kyle Anzalone, our opinion editor at Antiwar.com. Now, let's talk about uh, the latest on weapons and training for Ukraine. What do you have going on there?
1: All right. So, uh Dave DeCamp has a new piece out at antiwar.com today going over how the U.S. is looking at increasing the number of Ukrainian troops they're training every month to 2,500. Uh, that training is expected to take place in Germany. Uh, I, I think a lot of people, you know. The U.S. is providing most of the weapons to Ukraine, but I think at this point, uh, most of the soldiers are being trained by the U.K., actually, not the U.S. And so this would ramp up the number of troops the U.S. is training. I think it's right now at about a thousand a month, uh, but I think it's still short of what the U.K. is doing. Also, Finland is offering to train a bunch of Ukrainian troops in winter warfare.
0: All right. And then what's this about uh, new surface-to-air missiles being transferred?
1: Yes, yeah, so we had the situation a couple of weeks ago where a Ukrainian air defense missile killed two people in Poland, and you know initially the Ukrainian president Zelensky is making this huge deal, saying it was a Russian missile that hit Poland. Turned out, not, you know, not to be true. But with all that occurring, Germany offered to transfer some of their Patriot missiles to Poland. Poland rejected that and actually suggested that those missiles be transferred to Ukraine, and that has created a new conversation about moving uh, Patriot missile systems into Ukraine. Now, the German response to this was, we can't do this because these are a part of the collective NATO air defense system. And so they could be moved into Poland because Poland is a NATO member, but they can't be moved into uh, Ukraine because Ukraine isn't. Uh, the other issue, of course, is that it would require uh, Western troops to operate these systems. So if you know German troops go into uh, Ukraine, uh, uh, recently Russia said, I-, I believe Dmitry Medvedev tweeted out that those would become legitimate targets for Russia. And so those NATO troops would likely come under fire from Russian missiles fairly quickly if, if these systems are deployed into Ukraine. Mm.
0: All right. Now, so the biggest news from the battlefront over the last couple of months was the taking of the northern half of Luhansk in mid-September, early mid-September by Ukraine, uh, the taking back of it, I should say, um, and also of Kherson. Um just last month in November, where the uh, Russians withdrew from Kursan City. And um, I guess my understanding is that the battle lines have not changed very much since then, but the fighting does continue on. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that, that's about what I'm reading. I, I think some of the heavier fighting. I'm seeing is in the Southern Donbass region right now. And apparently uh, the Russians are at least claiming that they're making gains on the ground. Uh, and a couple of the you know maps I've looked at South Front have indicated there's a little bit of gains going on, but it doesn't seem like there's a major territory transfer. no cities being taken at this point. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Now, so this is a political decision and we don't know what's going to happen. But There are many reports coming in that the Russians are building up a massive invasion force for a winter offensive, waiting for the ground to freeze solid enough that their tanks won't get stuck in the mud and they can go and, you know, have the run of the place. Supposedly, they've had something like 120,000 troops in this war so far, and apparently they're planning on about doubling that. So that may have something to do with the fact that last month, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Milley had suggested that now is the time for talks. He said, listen, you boys did a great job there in getting Kursan City back. Now let's sit down to talk. Uh, Meaning, I think that he thinks that the situation for Ukraine is going to get worse, not better, and they'd be better off now signing a deal. I mean, I'm inferring here, he seemed to be implying that, yeah, you're going to lose Mariupol. You're going to lose, you know, at least the southern part of the Donbass Something, But better than what's coming. Now, my question for you, Kyle Anzalone from Antiwar.com, is what indications do we have that Milley's multiple statements along those lines have had any effect on the state of diplomacy between the United States, Ukraine and Russia on this issue?
1: Uh, you know, I really don't think it's had any effect that we've seen so far. Of course, there could always be more talks going on in the background than we publicly know about. Uh, but I've kind of interpreted a lot of Millie's comments even in the light of what came out of the Washington Post earlier in November, which was you know the Europeans are getting less interested in this. The the inflation is hurting them. You know, we recently had a report from Politico about a high ranking European official saying that you know, they're furious about this war because the U.S. is profiting. They're, you know, they're making money on the gas sales to Europe. They're making money on the weapon sales, but the Europeans are suffering and they're getting tired of this. And so Ukraine needs to pretend to be somewhat interested in diplomacy and can't be committed to war all the time or else it's going to lose some of its European benefactors. And so we've gotten comments from the White House around, you know, know, this idea of, oh, maybe Ukraine should engage in talks or at least remove the red line that Putin has to leave power in Russia before Ukraine will engage in talks. But, uh, you know, the White House does continue to say over and over again that talks will occur on Ukraine's timetable and that there's no pressure on Ukraine to engage in talks. And, you know, they're announcing a weapons package every week for Ukraine. Four hundred million dollars, I think, was the last one uh, Thanksgiving week. And I'm guessing we'll get another one this week. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, they announced from very early into the war now, uh, which is 10 months old at this point, that the strategy is to weaken Russia. They don't want to negotiate. They want to fight to the last Ukrainian. I think Lindsey Graham even used those words. Uh, yeah, hey, as long as they're willing to fight, we're willing to continue to pour weapons in there. And it really is amazing the degree to which they just brag about it all the time. They announce every new weapons package and in detail, and including bragging about helping provide intelligence that the Ukrainians have used to kill Russian generals, sink their flagship in the Black Sea, and all these things. But they act like they got some magic force field. Like that nuclear umbrella is anything but a promise to go to nuclear war. There's no umbrella, you know, (laughs) but here we are. Um, I'm sorry I'm looking at this headline this morning. It's unbelievable. Latvian foreign minister, NATO should not fear Moscow's response to strikes inside Russia. And I don't think he's talking about the newly incorporated, ostensibly, oblasts of eastern Ukraine. He's talking about strikes inside Russia and that and oh, Latvia, they're going to win World War three for us. Is that what it is or we're going to win it for them?
1: Yeah, the, I mean this is a wild statement. It was made during the NATO summit in Romania, which is of course at Bucharest and what 14 years after the the NATO said that they were going to add Ukraine and Georgia into NATO and this was a major provocation towards Moscow and denounced by Putin at the time. So, you know, making these statements at Bucharest probably have, you know, a little additional uh, provocations from the Kremlin's perspective of course, but you know Saying that we shouldn't fear uh, an escalation from Moscow is really absurd. And yeah, they, they have to be talking about attacks actually inside of probably not even Crimea, but, you know, the rest of Russia, Scott, and not just, um, in the disputed territories, which Ukraine carries out attacks in all the time. And, you know, Russia has mainly maintained the status quo. And when Ukraine attacked Crimea, then Russia escalated the war. And we've seen them knock out huge swaths of Ukraine's electrical grid. So, you know, I'm not sure how Russia would escalate if there's more attacks going on in Russia, but it's likely to be very serious. And uh, Bloomberg had a pretty interesting interview with the Italian foreign minister, who seemed to be responding to these comments and saying, "We." and the Italian foreign minister said, we don't want problems with the other countries. We are not in danger directly. And so I, I think... know, we see some of the split within Europe where there are a lot of these large European states uh, like Italy, France, Germany, who are far less interested in this war than some of the smaller states and the Americans and the British.
0: All right. It's anti-war radio. I'm Scott Horton talking with Kyle Anzalone. And very quickly, Kyle, can you give us an update on Korea, the latest missile test and the American military drills there?
1: Yeah, so North Korea continues to test missiles. I think they tested two intercontinental ballistic missiles last month. I I think one was successful and one wasn't. Uh, And in response, the U.S. has just increased its military presence in the region. Uh, The latest plan is to increase the size of their silent shark war games these are going to be anti-submarine war games North Korea claims that they've uh, you know made some gains in their ability to launch submarine uh, missiles that could fire nuclear tipped missiles earlier this year they claim they successfully test fired and were able to fire uh, nuclear capable missiles from underwater silos and so you know this is the response from the US and South Korea of course it's going to escalate the situation as all the American war games do. And the U.S. has been focusing on incorporating more Countries into the war game, so it's not just the U.S. and South Korea. Particularly Japan, there was a, a trilateral agreement signed between Tokyo, Seoul, and Washington in June at a NATO summit. And this is, you know, was seen as hugely provocative by Pyongyang as the U.S. trying to create a NATO in the Pacific to target North Korea. And so any of these nuclear or any of these exercises carried out by, uh, you know, trilaterally, particularly with Japan, uh, is seen as a major provocation from North Korea. And they they test, you know, new missiles or weapons in response. And then we have statements, uh, several statements from the U.S. high-ranking officials saying that, you know, we're willing to use nuclear weapons against North Korea.
0: All right, you guys, that is Kyle Anzalone, opinion editor at Antiwar.com. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Scott. Hey, y'all, you should sign up for my Substack. It's scotthortonshow.substack.com. And if you do that, you'll get the interviews a day before everybody else. But not only that, they'll be free of commercials. How do you like that? Pretty good, huh? scotthortonshow.substack.com Hey, y'all, LibertasBella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great top lobsters designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. Libertas Bella from the same great folks who bring you ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's LibertasBella.com. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for the Libertarian Institute at LibertarianInstitute.org. I'm the director. Then we've got Sheldon Richmond, Kyle Anzalone, Keith Knight, Lori Calhoun, Jim Bovard, Connor Freeman, Will Porter, Patrick McFarlane, and Tommy Salmons on our staff, writing and podcasting. And we've also got a ton of other great writers, too, like Walter Block, Richard Booth, Boss Spleet, Kim Robinson, and William Van Wagonen. We've published eight books so far, including my latest, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and Keith Knight's new Voluntarist Handbook. And we've got quite a few more great ones coming soon. Check out libertarianinstitute.org books. It's a whole new era. We libertarians don't have the power, but we do have enough influence to try to lead the left and the right. To make things right, join us at libertarianinstitute.org. All right, you guys. And introducing our next guest, it's the great reporter, Kevin Gostola from Shadowproof.com and The Dissenter. And he has been one of absolutely the greatest journalists on the story of Assange and Manning and WikiLeaks and the rest for these past 10 years and more. Welcome back to the show, Kevin. How are you doing, sir? Yeah,
2: it's good to talk with you.
0: Uh, Very happy to have you here. Now, um, let me ask you about Julian Assange here for a minute. You know, you look at him, his hair turned white at a very young age. He seems like he could be a Bond villain. Is Julian Assange evil?
2: No, I don't think Julian Assange is evil. I think that he really just cares about journalism And he dared to do something that a lot of U.S. news media organizations are not willing to do, which is challenge the U.S. military as well as uh, the State Department and other centers of power in the United States.
0: But, Kevin Gostola, is it true that when Julian Assange published that information on WikiLeaks, he got a bunch of Afghan informants murdered and has blood on his hands?
2: No. Actually, there was a trial. There was a court-martial against Chelsea Manning, who was the source of those leaks, And uh, you can hear her now. She's been touring, talking about her book. And this is what she says to that, which is during my trial, there was no evidence of that. No evidence was put into open court. Uh, I don't think there's even in secret court any list of people who were killed by any Taliban or any other terrorist group.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah, but is it true that Julian Assange, oh, and I'm sorry, if you're driving your car right now and you have kids in the car, turn it down for a second. One, two. Is it true that Julian Assange raped two women in
2: Sweden? No, because he was never appropriately questioned by the Swedish prosecutor who refused to do so because the Crown Prosecution Service that is actually handling the extradition of him now said, don't interview him in the Ecuador embassy, and the case was dropped And then opened and then dropped and then reopened. And there were so many prosecutorial improprieties that those women never were going to get justice because they were using him as a pawn. They weren't trying to get to the truth of what happened, if anything happened between him and those women. Mm
0: -hmm. And do you have reason to believe that there's justice that they were denied
2: in this case? You know, it's certainly possible. It's certainly possible, but it was also uh, I think it's more likely that they didn't have much of a claim to begin with. And then those loose allegations were manipulated by forces that are still hiding in the shadows. Mm.
0: Can you explain what you mean by that? I know that there's this guy, uh, Nils Melzer, who was the U.N. special reporter on however you say that on torture. Who had written this giant write up on specifically this aspect of the case? And I wonder if you're very familiar with it.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I'm not trying to like talk in some like fantasy or science fiction. Terminology. I mean what I mean by hiding in the shadows is there's actually a freedom of information requests, that several that have been put in by an Italian journalist named Stefania marizzi who's been trying to uncover the extent to which journalists and people associated to WikiLeaks were targeted by these governments and they won't give her the files. Um, in fact, we also know that the Crown Prosecution Service destroyed some files and they're just missing. We're never gonna know what happened. Uh, and so you know, you mentioned Niels Meltzer. His book and and, and other people in the work that these human rights lawyers have done on behalf of WikiLeaks shows that Julian Assange was in arbitrary detention for uh, the last decade. Um, Now going on 12 to 13 years, it began uh, when he was on house arrest. He then went in the Ecuador embassy and now he's being held in jail at Belmarsh high security prison Mm -hmm. and that treatment. Um, is due, and, uh, and the U.S. government is responsible for that treatment. Well,
0: and didn't Melzer write that he could pinpoint where the Americans intervened with the Swedes and said, you have a charge on him, you better, and the, you know, they essentially did this as a favor to the American national security state rather than an attempt to defend these women who had accused him of something.
2: Well, right. The understanding is that the case wasn't dropped because it was useful to keep him in legal limbo, and that's what we're seeing now. You know, these charges, even as dubious as they are, even with the opposition globally, the Biden Justice Department, the Biden White House, the State Department under Antony Blinken maintains these charges for the purpose of keeping Julian Assange in this state of detention. Mm.
0: Well, maybe. It's just a shame that America doesn't have an Official Secrets Act like England does, and they have to trump up some kind of charge because he's a Russian agent who helped Vladimir Putin rig the election of 2016. Is that true, Kevin Costola from Shadowproof?
2: Well, there's two problems with that, because one— uh we are seeing appeals that have not been heard in an appeals court in Britain yet and that's something that his lawyers are going to challenge that it was inappropriate the way that the lower court decided against him that he did not have press freedom rights or a right to publish and one of the arguments his lawyers make is that what Julian Assange did is not a crime in the United Kingdom you know not only are is it not when you're talking about the official secrets act uh but it's also not a crime because of of um, uh, you know various things not transferring over to the U.S. They call them political offenses. Uh, so then, with the Russian angle, that's got nothing to do with this case. So it has no bearing. In fact, we haven't heard Russia be a focus of any of the prosecutors in the British courts, and it's certainly not in the indictment. The only thing that comes close to Russia. In the indictment is a mention that he used to have a talk show, which was called World Tomorrow on Russia Today or RT. And um, I mean, that's just in to give it some flavor. But there's no charges related to the Russia angle at all. Mm.
0: You know, this is in the news again this week, because uh, just last week, the New York Times and other major papers had signed this letter asking the DOJ to back off. In fact, the Australians did, too. But in the New York Times news story about what the editorial board was doing by Charlie Savage, the notorious liar of the Russia bounties hoax of the summer of 2020. He just asserted as flat fact in there that Julian Assange got the Hillary Clinton and Democratic National Committee emails from the Russian government. And that was the conduit. And he just claimed it, even though I believe our very best information on that score comes from the Robert Mueller report where he admitted outright that they have no chain of custody whatsoever between Russia and WikiLeaks on those emails. We have CrowdStrike on the record saying they can't even prove that they were exfiltrated from the server, only prepared to be. And we have experts saying that they were removed by thumb drive, not over the internet whether that's debatable or not. Still, it's reasonable doubt all over the place. And yet the narrative stands that Vladimir Putin, through Julian Assange, did some kind of soft coup in the United States of America in 2016. And now you're telling me, geez, that's funny because they don't ever charge him with anything like that.
2: Yeah. And so this is exactly what Charlie Savage wrote. I have it in front of me. His public image, he's referring to Julian Assange, His public image shifted significantly after WikiLeaks published Democratic emails that had been hacked by the Russian government as part of its covert operation to help Donald J. Trump win the 2016 presidential election, except nothing is in quotes. Uh, It doesn't say alleged. Um, It doesn't say his public image shifted because Democrats and the Justice Department went after Julian Assange and accused him of being aligned with the Russian government to help Donald Trump win. For an institution that holds itself out, demagogues on the issue of fact checking. That's all the Trump era was, and that's how it was defined, that we need to stick by the facts. Well, guess what? PolitiFact says there's only circumstantial evidence that WikiLeaks had any role to play in what happened with those emails. And by the way, Um, I interviewed
0: Craig Murray, the former British ambassador, and he told me himself that he knows who did the DNC leak and the rest of them too and that they're all Americans and have no conceivable tie to Russia whatsoever and he's a close friend of Julian Assange and take that for what it's worth but people can listen to that i think it's quite credible and i'm sorry we're so short on time here but i the reason that we're talking about this right now is because finally the new york times is standing up for their own right for charlie savage to produce you know secrets that aren't true on the front page of their paper without getting in trouble and The government of Australia is finally chiming in. So I wonder if you think, do you hear any scuttlebutt? What's the word? Are they actually going to drop the charges against Assange and just make an example out of him by holding him without trial for all these years in this way?
2: Yeah, I don't know if it's going to be a breakthrough, but I don't think it's going to come from the New York Times and The Guardian and these other outlets finally being out there uh, united. I mean, it took some agitating. I think Holger Stark... He was a person who worked for Der Spiegel, the German newspaper. He was in Washington. Um, And back in October... He's no longer with this organization, but he said, hey, it's time for all five of these outlets that benefited from these leaks to come out in support of Julian Assange. Mm-hmm. And they hadn't said anything. You know, one of the things that is troubling, it's great to see them come forward finally. But when you look at this open letter, something clearly important is missing, and that is they are against the Espionage Act offenses, but they do not oppose strongly the computer offense mm-hmm. that is Uh, being leveled against Julian Assange. And very quickly, Kevin Gostola
0: from Shadowproof, those accusations in the indictment are a total fraud, right? We've been through this.
2: Yeah, the password-cracking conspiracy that was concocted by prosecutors and has been thrown at Julian Assange is without any basis whatsoever and you don't have to listen to me you can go to the US military court martial against Manning look at their own records you can listen to a army crime expert someone who works on investigating digital forensics for the military who testified in Assange's defense and he says there is no basis for these allegations
0: All right that's it I'm sorry we're out of time but you know I hope that we made a dent here in that public perception that Charlie Savage and his friends did so much to help to manage to demonize this guy and to reverse that so that people know that this guy is absolutely Julian Assange, the exemplar of journalism for the world and ought to be, you know, for this country, like Benjamin Franklin and his printing press, this guy. And they've somehow turned the public against him. And it ain't right. And so I thank you so much for all the great work that you have done on this issue for all of these years, Kevin, and setting the record straight. Uh, thank you. All right, you guys, that is Kevin Gostola. He's at Shadowproof and at The Dissenter. And that's it for Anti-War Radio for today. Thank you, everybody, very much for listening. I'm Scott Horton, editorial director of antiwar.com and author of Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Check out the full interview archive. More than 5,800 of them now, going back to 2003 at scotthorton.org. Follow me on Twitter at Scott Horton Show. And I'm here every Thursday at 2.30 on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. See you next week.